We'll go ahead and take a, be- take a seat and let's uh, pause for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for those words of freedom. We pray that you would free us once again from the things that we so easily get entangled in during the week, uh, wherever we're coming from, and that we would find that freedom in your Son, Jesus Christ, where true freedom is found. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, welcome again to Epiphany. Good to have you here tonight. Uh, a while back, I, I had a friend who had just recently started to explore Christianity. Uh, he had gone to, to various churches, uh, had various Christian friends, and had even started to study the Bible pretty seriously. And uh, admittedly, I mean, this friend of mine was, he was troubled. He was, you know, he would think about things pretty intently and intensely and would sometimes get himself into trouble just tangled up in his mind thinking about uh, different things. But he was very sincere and very, very honest. And uh, so I probed a little bit about why he was, seemed to be troubled when I saw him. And, uh, and he just said, sort of boiling out in frustration and anger, you know, the God I read about in the Bible is, just seems to not be fair. He demands perfection from his creation, but knows full well that we're never going to be able to get there, that there's no way we can do it. And then what does he do? He condemns us for it. As I was talking to my friend, I couldn't help but think of the young Martin Luther. Uh, Today is Reformation Day, of course, in the church's calendar, and so we observe this historical moment that happened just over 500 years ago. Last year was the 500th anniversary. We're almost to the 501st anniversary in a few days. And so we will spend a bit of time tonight looking at Luther and to understand Luther's passion in the beginnings of the Reformation, reformation, trying to reform something that had uh, seemingly gotten lost in the shuffle throughout history. Uh, You have to understand his own incredible struggle with God. You see, to, to Luther, like my friend, the biggest problem in the world was not what we're kind of prone to say, which is evil and suffering in the world. We sort of see that as like the worst thing, and it is. It's terrible. But for Luther, like my friend, the biggest problem was this feeling, this sense that no matter what he did, he would never be good enough to please a holy and truly just God. He would read passages like Matthew 7 where Jesus says that we must be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And then read passages in Romans where it says that the wages of sin or imperfection is death. And he would read passages like our passage today where Jesus says all who sin show themselves slaves to sin. And a slave can't free himself from the sin. And he would ask himself in frustration how on earth can a man truly be free, be saved. And The church at the time before the Reformation, leading up to the Reformation, had come up with quite an elaborate system to answer that question. So they said first, of course, one had to believe. Yes, obviously, but they had to confess their sins, okay? Then they had to do penance, and usually that was, you know, some sort of action to pay off 
uh, one's sins. But because the requirement was perfection, that wasn't quite enough either. And so, you know, because people continue to sin, even if they're Christians or have been Christians for a while. And so eventually a doctrine known as purgatory came to prominence within the medieval system. And basically purgatory taught that it was a place, uh, purgatory was this idea that it was a place you go after you die in order to pay off the rest of the punishment for your sins, to pay off the penalty for your sins. It was a place of purging, which meant it was a place of pain. It was a place of difficulty. Well, no one wanted to spend very much time there, so they created another system known as the indulgence system. And the idea behind that was that one could, in essence, earn time off of purgatory for their relatives or maybe even themselves if they did certain good deeds or especially if they gave money to the church for the purposes of the church, usually at this time building quite elaborate cathedrals such as St. Peter's Basilica. And it was that practice of indulgences, this idea that you could in some way pay for your sins with money that really started to rile Luther's feathers. As he studied scripture diligently, I mean, he was called to do that. He was actually teaching scripture. He just saw that there was nothing in scripture that taught such a thing, that you could pay your way down. Usually what you paid for when you, you weren't just giving money to the church, what you would do is you'd give money and in turn the church would give you some relic. And by that time, the church, churches everywhere across Europe had these relics. What were these relics? Well, it could be like St. Peter's Tooth or it could be a bone of St. Andrew or it could be, you know, uh, some hair follicles. I mean, I'm not, this is not an exaggeration. I mean, it's endless. And every church and every prince in Europe, a bunch of them had their collection of relics that they would buy or sell. And if you bought a relic, then you'd earn time off of purgatory. And Luther said, I don't see that anywhere. And so he got, he put together this little document with 95 thesis statements on it. Uh, entitled, A Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. Now his goal, his goal was not in any way to start a mass movement. He literally just, he did what everybody did. If you wanted to have a local debate with your local leaders, he posted it on the church door. He just posted it on the church door for them to read to try and get some questions he had answered. Uh, little did he know that someone got a hold of these thesis statements, reprinted them with the newly invented printing press from Gutenberg, and that document, this 95 thesis statement document, spread like wildfire, and pretty soon there were debates going on all over the place about it. And the central question that was being debated was this. How is it that a human being is saved or freed by God? How does it happen? And the early reformers came up with essentially four, they're called four solas historically, or five, it depends on what you're looking at, but we're going to talk about four of them tonight. And sola just means alone. So you can think of alone statements, and they were this. 
Salvation, according to these, these reformers, came by the word alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if you wanted to add the fifth, to the glory of God alone. Okay. So let's look at it. To the word alone. From the word alone. When Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees in the text that Kat read, um, oftentimes the thing that would get him in trouble with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees, is that he would criticize their traditions. He would criticize what they were doing. You have to wash this way, look this way, talk this way, give this much, then you'll be right with God. And the way Jesus would deal with them is by constantly bringing them back to the Bible, the scriptures, the word of God alone as the sole authority for faith and practice. You'll hear him do this all the time. He'll quote the Old Testament all the time. In our text, Jesus once again affirms this idea saying, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth is connected with his word. What is Jesus affirming here? That it is from his word that one eventually is set free. It starts from the word. So the first answer Jesus gives in our text today about how one is made free is from his powerful word that we find in the scriptures of the Bible. Well, just as in Jesus' day, the religious leaders of Luther's day had added all sorts of traditions on top of scripture, um, certain church leaders were held in as high esteem as the Bible itself. If a pope said it or a church council had decreed it, then it was held on the same level with scripture at the time. Even today, um, our Roman Catholic friends, at least on an official level, on an official level, do teach that it is not the word alone with the highest authority, but both word and tradition have equal weight and force. Whereas Luther and the reformers said no. When we look at what the apostles taught, they said it was the scriptures, the scriptures alone that we go to for faith and practice. And so, not real long after Luther posted his questions about indulgences and other abuses in the church, he was brought before an official church inquiry called the Diet of Worms, spelled W-O-R-M-S, worms. Um, it was not a diet of eating worms and was asked to recant the things he had written. We want you to get rid of this stuff. And this is what he said in response. Unless I am convinced by the testimonies of the Holy Scriptures or evident reason, I am bound by the Scriptures that I have adduced, and my conscience has been taken captive by the Word of God, and I am neither able nor willing to recant, since it is neither safe nor right to act against conscience. God help me. Amen. Side note, when Luther refused to recant at that moment, this was a death sentence for him. This is just the, the intermingling of the church and the state at the time. Everything was so tied together that because he refused to recant, this was certainly his death. The only reason he didn't end up being killed is because 
uh, a prince from where he was from, or from where he was teaching, took a liking to him and protected him and basically took him into hiding. And he hid out as a knight, pretending to be a knight for quite some time. He called himself Knight George. And no one knew where he was. This is true. They had to put him in hiding because they knew, because of his refusal to recant on this point, he was a dead man. So indeed, the word alone is the authority that delivers the goods, delivers the gospel. Therefore, Paul writes, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Where do they get the word of Christ? The Bible. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 says, do not go beyond what is written. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 says, the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God. And so, the Reformation distinguished themselves, or the Reformation is distinguished by believing that salvation comes first from the word alone. It starts with the word being preached. Second element to God saving sinners is that it is by his grace alone. By his grace alone. Now again, as Jesus spoke to the Jews in our text, he tells them that by their nature, they are slaves to sin. Now he's not just speaking to this crowd, he is making a statement about all humanity. We know this because in John chapter 3, he says the same thing about all humanity, that everybody is born a slave to sin. And they could not understand what he meant at all. Because they were sons of Abraham by birth. And they thought they followed the law and had a special blessing from God. And so Jesus reiterates, verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In other words, it doesn't matter what lineage you have. It doesn't matter what background you came from. If you're not connected with the son, then you are not free. His point was to show them the only way they could be freed is if they receive the grace that he had to offer them. And once again, flash forward 1,500 years, and the religious establishment of the Reformation didn't see themselves as enslaved either. Not at all. They actually had come to believe that the way a slave to sin was freed from their sin was through a combination of some grace that God had given them. They called it infused grace. That was the phrase used. And their own good works. So it was a, it was a mixture of the two. So it was don't do this, do that in order to be right with God. Buy this and you will be right with God. The more you do, the more you buy, the more merit you acquire before God, the better chance you have of someday being in heaven. But again, Luther, student of the Bible, scholar of the Bible, and he was, he really was, that was what he was trained to do, begins to see that it isn't his works at all that free a person. Indeed, he sees that the Bible actually doesn't mention purgatory at all as a place to pay off one's sins. doesn't mention the practice of indulgences to pay off time in purgatory. It really all comes upon him while reading the first chapter of Romans. He recognizes that what he needs to stand right with God was not something that he could produce, but he had to be taught from Scripture that it was in fact God's grace that saves a person. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved and this, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. Galatians 2, we know that a person is not justified, saved, freed by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. 
So what is grace? What does it look like? Well, I suppose I could give you a bunch of illustrations. I mean, this is sort of what I'm called to do, right? I mean, this is the thing. I'll give you one from when I first became a pastor. <clears throat> I remember going with my mentor pastor, Ron Sunwall, on a hospital visit for the first time. We were visiting a woman in our congregation named Charlene who was dying. She no longer could, um, she no longer could eat. She could not digest anything. And I wanted to learn as much as I could from Ron because I had never been in a situation like this. I'd never been around somebody who was dying and as a pastor them, ministering them, what do you do? And here's what I saw him do. I saw her, she was laying in the bed and she was very ill and she was, she didn't have much life left in her, but she was still able to kind of acknowledge he was there. And I remember seeing him get down real close. We walked in the room, he very quietly got down right next to her face. And he grabbed her hand and he rubbed her hand and he said, Charlene, it's Pastor Ron. I'm here. I'm here. And I that's, I just was observing what he was doing. And I saw her, even though she barely had much life in her, I saw her perk up because somebody was there with her. And I remember I wanted to do everything I could to emulate that in my own ministry. So flash forward about seven years. By this time, I'm a pastor in Staten Island, New York. A woman named Evelyn has been on my list to visit for quite some time. I visited her at least every other week for, oh gosh, I guess a year or so. And she's just, she hasn't been well, but she hasn't been uh, in terrible health either, but she's in this nursing home and there's not much more to do for her. And eventually she gets less and less healthy and more sick. And the last time I went and saw her, no one had told me this, but I walked in and I could tell she was getting near death. Her eyes were glassy and she was just looking kind of straight ahead. She was breathing, but her breathing was, it was, you could tell, very difficult for her. And so I, I had come initially to see Evelyn with communion, bread and wine. But I know that she's not able to participate with me. And so... I sit next to Evelyn and I pray over her and I read a psalm to her. She does not give any indication that she is conscious of this, but she's still breathing. And I know that what I've got with me is the greatest treasure that the world has ever been given. I've got the means by which God gives his body and blood to the world. I've got communion with me and I, I came to give her this gift. And so I do. I sit next to Evelyn and I get the smallest, tiniest crumb of bread. And I place it on her lips. And I say, Evelyn, for you 
at this exact moment, Christ comes to you and gives you his body. And then I get the slightest drop of wine. And I say, Evelyn, for the forgiveness of all your sins, the blood of Christ shed for you. I prayed over her again. She was still breathing, but she didn't give me any sign that she was, she knew I was even there. And then my phone rang. On my way home from the hospital, I found out that she had gone home to be with the Lord in glory. But what a moment of incredible grace. In this woman's last moments of her life, God had decided to send somebody that could give her the goods, to give her everything she needed to pass into glory. Because in the final analysis, that's what Jesus says we need to be free, to be saved. We need his body and blood. We need him to save us. He who has the Son has life, he says. So then how is this gift received? Well, the reformer said it was through faith. Jesus said, if you abide in my word. In another section, he was asked what the work of God was. What is the work of God? If you can boil it down to one thing, Jesus, what is it? Here's what he said. Believe in the one he has sent, namely me. For the system of the church at the time of the Reformation, it was constantly a mixture of faith and works. But Jesus says, no, no, this is what I want you to know. I want you to believe in me. Again, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that faith is something that we need. And the good news is that it's given to us. It's not something you can muster up. Jesus says, I have set you free, so abide in me, hang on to me, trust in me, depend upon me. So, Three things so far we've learned that the reformers kind of hung their hat on for the Reformation. They said, salvation comes by the word alone. It comes by grace alone, God coming to us where we're at, stooping to us at our lowest, at our hardest, at our most uh, 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 incapacitated even. And it's received by faith, just saying, you know what faith is in its most simple form? Yes, I will take what you have to offer me, Jesus, Sure. I will take that body and blood for my salvation. Thank you. That's really what it is. But, but here's the key. In the final analysis, if you have all those things and you don't have this last part, then you don't have everything. You don't have what you need. The reformer said it comes in Christ alone. Jesus said to those in the crowd that day that only the Son could set them free. Not some other prophet, not another Moses, but only Jesus Christ himself Going back to scripture, Luther saw that there was no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. That the scripture clearly said in 1 Timothy 2 that there was only one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. That it is only Jesus that has lived perfectly in our place, meriting the favor we need. It is only Christ who is powerful enough as God to pay for the sins of the whole world. That it is only Jesus that is risen from the dead in the body, defeating death for all time. That it was only Jesus that ascended to the right hand of the Father, esteemed in glory forever. Not anyone or anything else will do. Jesus comes, takes the punishment for your sin, takes the filth of your sin on the cross, and in exchange gives you life. And that's why he needs to be the hub of everything. He's the center. When my 13-year-old son Jude was a little guy, 
he hated going to bed, just hated it, and would fight me almost every night. He was maybe, I don't know, two, maybe three. I know he is at the age where he was still wearing a onesie to bed. And this one particular night, I laid him down in bed, and he was kicking and screaming. And so I closed the door in his room, which made him even more angry, just kicking and screaming more. And that, you know, then he would start throwing his toys against the door. I don't know where he got such a fighting instinct from, but, you know, it's there. And I just wanted to, I just wanted to watch TV. You know, I just wanted to, I was like done for the day. You know, it's that time, like go to bed. I don't care what happens from this point on. Just go night-night. I want to watch TV and rest. But he, he didn't have the same plans. So he kept on throwing, and he kept on screaming, he got more angry, and I just, I said, I'm not going to go in, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, he's just going to tire himself out to go to sleep. Too bad. Tough luck, kid. And then I heard, and he had gotten himself so angry that he threw up. And I knew he did. I heard it. And part of me was like, oh, too bad. Go to bed. I was upset because, I mean, he had gotten, he made me have to come in and check on him. I can't not go in there. Like, I can't not deal with the kid covered in vomit. I have to do something or else I'm an abusive father. I have to. Dang it. <laughs> so, I pause whatever I'm watching on TV and I walk into his room and I see him just sitting on the bed, utterly defeated, covered in his own filth. And he's just crying, but it's, it's not screaming now, it's just whimpering. He's so tired. And I can remember still, like it was yesterday, going instantly from being angry at him to just being filled with compassion for him. to just being filled with love for him. And so I slowly came up to him and I took his filthy clothes off and then I took him in my hands and I cleaned him up and I changed his clothes and I got him all clean again and laid him back into bed and he fell asleep in no time. And then I walked back out to my recliner to go watch TV and I realized that in the process of cleaning him, I had gotten his filth all over me. It was all over my clothes. To some extent, when we're told that Jesus comes to take the sin of the world for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's as if he's taken each one of us that because of our own rebellion and our own anger and our own failures have just made a mess of our lives. Have just, I mean, are completely filthy and overwhelmed with compassion for each one of us because for some amazing reason he still actually does love us in the midst of our rebellion he cleans us up, but in the process, takes all the dirt.
Jesus Christ comes to us where we're at, opening the door where our sin is spilling all over us, and at the cross he gets dirty. But in the process, takes away the sting of death and hell for every one of us. Thus, when Luther was counseling, counseling a friend who was struggling still, I mean, this is so common, you know, he's a Christian for a long time, he's still struggling with sin, and he's sort of beside himself, like, how in the world can this still possibly be? I thought I could pass this. And he's really, really depressed. Luther's counsel would always come back to the cross of Christ. He would say something like this. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, I want you to tell him this. Listen up. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Tell him that. And that, the reformer said, results in glory to God alone. So as we look at what animated the original Reformation, it seems to me when I look around the modern uh, church that there really does need to be a modern Reformation uh, of these things. We need to recover the majesty and awesomeness and liberating power of the gospel once again. The late Robert Capon, theologian, pastor, once memorably wrote, the Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering, drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace. Bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel, after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they even started. May we indeed sip from the pure distillate of Scripture again. Sipping on all the glory of the grace of the gospel so that we would be so intoxicated with it that we walk in the great freedom that inevitably comes with it. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this day where we celebrate really a recovery of something that's always been there. Father, help us to avoid the traps that all of us inevitably can fall into, which is to, to add something different to this wonderful story of your grace and your gospel. The simplicity of the word alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, being all we need for freedom and salvation is wonderful. Prepare our hearts now as we Go to the table to receive this body and blood of Christ given for us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.